My mother used to say long time ago, whenever there would be any really catastrophe that was on the, in the movies or or on the air, she would say, "Always look for the helpers. There were there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines." That's why I think that if news programs could make a conscious effort of showing rescue teams, of, of showing who medical people, anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy, to be, to be sure that they include that. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. We listened to Mr. Rogers and did an entire show on the helpers back in April. Today, we'll check in on some of the people providing food and other critical services to those in need. The demand for assistance has increased tremendously since March. So what happens when demand outstrips supply of volunteers and of food? Joining me now is Scott Lewis, the Executive Director of Enterprises, Education, and Employment at Catholic Charities of Washington. Scott Lewis, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me, Kojo, on this great show. Radha Muthaya is the President and CEO at the Capital Area Food Bank. Radha, good to talk to you again. Good to talk to you too, Kojo. Radha, what is the mission of the Capital Area Food Bank? Tell our listeners. The Capital Area Food Bank provides food to hundreds of uh, thousands of individuals who are hungry or food insecure in our region. And we do that through um, through our network of about 400 plus partners, nonprofit partners, including actually many organizations uh, like Catholic Charities, uh, for example, the Father McKenna Center here in D.C. And so we work to provide food through these soup kitchens, pantries, senior centers, um, other communities based organizations. And typically, um, and I emphasize the word typically here, um, in a typical year, we would provide uh, roughly about 30 million meals uh, to those in need in our community. 30 million meals on a typical year. But that was before the pandemic. How many have you, how many people have you been serving and how many meals have you been providing for since the start of the pandemic? It's it's a great question. You know, we we're tracking this data since about March is when we look at the pandemic as sort of beginning in all earnest in our area, and we've seen tremendous increases in in demand, um, anywhere from you know thirty percent in some months with some partners to four hundred percent increase in the number of individuals who are in need. Um, I'll explain a little bit why these numbers are so high. Uh, typically, those who are in need of food rely on the food bank for about three to five days worth of food every month. Many of these individuals are working and they have some income to be able to support their nutrition needs, but they they have a gap and they come to the food bank uh, to help address that gap. What's happened in the course of the pandemic is that those individuals have relied on us not just for three to five days worth of food, but closer to two weeks worth of food. Uh, One, because we've all heard the public health guidance that we should have 
a good amount of food, you know, in our homes. And so, you know, those who we're supporting need to have that same amount of food as well. But the other reason demand has gone up is because there are so many more individuals who in the past were, you know, comfortable working paycheck to paycheck, but at least able to meet their own food needs, who've recently become unemployed. And so those individuals who were, um, you know, working paycheck to paycheck, not having that paycheck, um, has uh, has unfortunately put them in the situation of food insecurity. So we are, you know, supporting those who we may have supported before the pandemic, but a pretty large number of individuals who are new to having to navigate this emergency food assistance system in our area. Scott Lewis, same question to you. What is the mission of Catholic Charities? Well, the mission of Catholic Charities is to serve all people in need, uh, to be able to open doors for um, services that others aren't able to access. Catholic Charities has legal services, social services, mental, dental, behavioral health, uh, food and employment services, and many more. Uh, and during this pandemic, um, we have seen, just as the Capillaria Food Bank has, exponential increase in the need uh, for food. Uh, the people that we serve um, when this pandemic hit really didn't have the money to have two weeks worth of food in their uh, pantry. Uh, again, living pay to, paycheck to paycheck, um, they were kind of left without anything and without a job. And so during this period, we have um, increased the amount of food that we've distributed into the community through three of our locations, one that's in Mount Pleasant in Columbia Heights, one that's up in Silver Spring, and then another location down in Southern Maryland in uh, Charles County in Waldorf. Uh, you meant that wasn't you, enough. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I did, no, go no, go right ahead. I was going to ask you more specifically nope. about your Mount Pleasant food pantry, but go ahead. Yeah, so the Mount Pleasant Pleasant Food Pantry, um, before the pandemic hit, served maybe 50 to 75 families a week. And right after um, March 13th, uh, we saw this huge increase. Um, and we are serving every week about 650 families. Um, we're doing it in um, in uh, social dis with using social distance and PPE. We're actually even giving out PPE equipment and uh, masks and uh, uh, hand sanitizer, um, al along with protein, um, fresh fruits and vegetables, meats, um, diapers. We've partnered with a dairy to give out um, fresh milk. Uh, and what I was going to say also is that this wasn't quite enough. We have other, uh, there are other places that um, aren't in these three locations. So we started a series of community food drops. Um, every week we do another drop of 500 to 1,000 packages in some area in this, uh, in some parking lot or, or area in Prince George's, Montgomery County, or in DC, and usually serving up to 500 to 1,000 families. Before the pandemic at your Mount Pleasant location, um, how many families a week were you serving compared with how many families you're serving every Wednesday now? Well, we were serving 50 to 75 families before the pandemic, and now we're serving um, consistently about 650 families. It's a huge wow. increase. 
onto the phones. Here is Terry in Herndon, Virginia. Terry, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello there, Kojo. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, I uh, volunteer. I was going to say I work for, uh, but it is a volunteer position for She Believes in Me. And we're an organization in Herndon, Virginia, and we are helping the most vulnerable families here, which are mostly immigrants. And we have um, kind of changed our focus since COVID hit. And we are now feeding families every week um, through an adoptive family program with fresh foods. We have a number of community partners, excuse me, here in Herndon and Northern Virginia. With uh, We partner with Flores UMC, a church that gives us space. And we have a pantry now with diapers and food and fresh food. Um, Cornerstones help support us. They're an outfit from Reston. And then bras, they give us uh, feminine hygiene products. So, um, yeah, we're out there just serving this community every single day. Um, And we're we're now developing new programs that are going to reach them for emotional support, where we're going to have, like, wellness liaisons meet with the families, of course, social distancing, and checking on their needs and transition more to giving them activities because, you know, many of these kids are going to be home for the school year and, um, you know, kind of... Easy mind games and things to keep them engaged, as well as a bunch of snacks. With these families, parents going back to work, they need easy to fix meals for that themselves. Okay, thank you very much, Terry, for sharing that with us and for the good work you're obviously doing. Rada, where were you getting food for distribution before the pandemic, and how are you receiving it now? Uh, so prior to the pandemic, about 60% of the food that we receive at the food bank is donated to us, uh, whether it's from area retailers or large uh, so, you know, food drives that companies, schools, et cetera, would, would hold. Um, right at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that decline by about 75%. Um, I think it won't be a surprise to your listeners, given that all of us were probably going to the stores at that point to uh, you know get anything we could get and food was flying off the shelves. So retailers just didn't have as much to donate to us. Um, So as a result, we are having to purchase just, um, you know, multiple times more what we would have purchased um, ever before um, in at the food bank. You know, as I look back at, you know, this, the last few months and compare that to the 40 years that the food bank has been here serving the Washington DC region, this has most certainly been the most resource intensive period that we have, uh, that we have witnessed. From mid-March, we've purchased about 350 truckloads of food. Um, And so just in the last few months, we've purchased close to 12 times what we purchased, um, you know, in the entire last year. So what we're not getting in terms of food donations, we are substituting in the form of purchases that we are making uh, for, for the community. I think it's also important to highlight the important role that we and other nonprofits have engaged in. In, as it relates to advocacy, because this, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot that food banks and partners, um, you know, like Catholic Charities and, and like, um, you know, the other organizations in our area, um, you know, there's a lot we can do on our own, but there's a lot that the government can do as well. And so the advocacy component has been really important um, to ensure that there are programs that uh, the government can run through USDA uh, that really help bring the food that's available 
from farms uh, and and help uh, funnel that, if you will, through food banks to those who are in need. So we're we've been lucky in that our advocacy and engagement with USDA has resulted um, just about a month and a half ago in a new program called the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program um, that really provides healthy produce, protein, and dairy uh, that's, uh, that helps farmers and helps uh, those who are hungry. Um, and, and that's facilitated at least through the end of December. So programs like this are really important um, because they f- allow us to do more of what needs to be done to be able to meet the demand that, that's currently out there in the community and we know might be out there for, for some time to come given that the economic recovery could, uh, could take a while. Here's Pam in Washington, D.C. Pam, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thank you so much, Kojo. I actually um, am at So Others Might Eat downtown, dropping off hundreds of baked goods um, that have been baked by a whole host of teenage and tween age kids who I work with at a Dutch Shalom Reconstructionist congregation. And they have been totally amazing in not only studying people experiencing homelessness and their situation and gentrification and racial justice, but they've put, they're walking the walk. They are making hundreds and hundreds of cookies and baked goods, making all of these masks um, and making meals for cavalry women's services. They are just amazing. So it's a shout out for all of these young people. Yes. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. And Rada, Pam said she is downtown, which causes me to raise this issue. Has the increase in people going to your pantries been even across the region, or are there certain areas that have a greater need of your services? I'm really glad that you asked that, and it's great to hear that Pam's at So Others Might Eat. Some is a big partner of ours in D.C., and we're proud to continue to work with them in a big way. Um, we cover the entire greater Washington uh, metropolitan area, so all eight wards in the district, as well as the counties in northern Virginia and suburban Maryland, so Prince George's and Montgomery County. There's no question that need has increased significantly across the entire region. What is interesting, as we you know start to look at unemployment claims, um, you know, over the last few months, there we do see some unevenness in terms of where we have greater numbers of unemployed. So as we've studied those claims, we are seeing that, you know, while, of course, unemployment is increasing across the board, it seems to be particularly high um, in Fairfax County, Montgomery County, Prince William County. And so for those who are unemployed and who happen to, you know, have earned incomes that are on the lower end of the spectrum, we know that that unemployment can correlate with poverty and food insecurity very, very quickly. And so we're paying particular attention um, to these counties that are experiencing you know, high growth rates of unemployment, knowing that they may be more newly food insecure individuals in those areas. Um, but the statistics I shared earlier in terms of the growth in demand, that's consistent across across the entire region. Um, and so we see tremendous growth uh, across across our area. Scott Lewis, in less than two weeks, 30 million people will lose the additional federal unemployment money of $600 per week that they've been receiving. Are you prepared because of that for a potential surge in demand? Um, yes, we're prepared for the next, I'd say, two months. 
Um, we have been purchasing food um, and relying on um, a lot of our partnerships with also with farms, farmers, and other uh, retailers in the area to to um, fill our pantries full of food. But um, I'm afraid that um, you know we're going to come to an end at some point, and um, we were only able to do this because of the generous donations of some corporations, many um, families, many uh, people that gave to us at this period of time. Um, also, I'm really thankful for the volunteers that helped us to do this work. Um, but yes, I'm really worried. Uh, we've we've been filing unemployment claims or helping file unemployment claims with um, clients that call us, as well as uh, connecting people to SNAP benefits. And um, we know that it's huge, and we know that those folks need the money. And when this uh, cut comes to unemployment, it's going to be dramatic, and it's going to cause a large uh, financial problem for our families. Here's Habiba in Washington, D.C. Habiba, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi. I just wanted to mention that we've been working with the bank for last, at least three years, if not four, and we give out fresh food, produce, and hot meals lately, uh, once a month to the community in Anacostia, which is a food desert, as you know. And so I just wanted to mention that we're there. We've been doing it for four, five years, working with the food bank through the four years. And we've also been making lunches for the kids because the husband used to get out snacks to them, and now they're missing that. So we do lunches Tuesdays and Thursdays, and he takes them around to the kids in their, in their homes, and we give it out to the community. So we're actually doing one this, this weekend, a food um, bank, fresh produce giveaway this weekend. Okay. Abiba, thank you very much for sharing that information with us. On to Denise in Washington, D.C. Denise, your turn. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Denise Woods, and I'm coordinator for Sanctuary DMV Food Justice Initiative. And we started with the hopes of providing food to people who had, be, had been accompanying on ICE appointments. And that was a very small group. And within a week or two, we skyrocketed and exploded to 1,200 people. And now we have 2,300 on our wait list. And we have raised $200,000 and provided food justice to approximately 18,000 people in three and a half months. And we pretty much built the plane while we flew it in order to make sure that people who are running out of food could get food on their plates that day. We were then completely overwhelmed and had to shut down our intake. We were getting 100 to two to 300 requests a day. And uh, what we found out is a beautiful firestorm because people were telling everyone they loved and then some our number. They were putting it on Facebook, putting it on the radio, and we just couldn't keep up. And so now we really need volunteers because people, black and brown immigrants, are disproportionately impacted by COVID and unemployment. And they are locked out of the system in terms of government funds. So we are we really would love to see the community rally around because our government is basically abandoning, and we uh, these the people need food justice right now. Denise, thank you very much for your call. First, you Scott Lewis. A lot of people want to help. It might be a little difficult for some of them to contribute. But how challenging has it been raising money to meet the additional demand? Well, it's been a challenge, but we've been um, I've, we've got some great folks working on um, on writing grants and uh, and asking for money, and we have gotten it. 
um, only through the generosity of, um, of many great donors. Um, I think that this problem is not going to go away, not for the people that we serve and not for the short term or the long term. And so I do ask that people give what they can. And if they can't give, they can give their time. Um, we have volunteer opportunities for people. They could come to our website at catholiccharitiesdc.org where they can donate or they can uh, find out of an opportunity where they can volunteer with one of our programs. Thank you very much. Um, I, before I put the same question to you, Rada, let's hear from Becky in Washington, D.C. Becky, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I have a local retail shop in D.C., and we try to use our platform um, for good when we um, have a pressing community issue. And so I'd love to host a fundraiser. I, I remember the same discussion happening just a few weeks after shutdown. And um, I'm curious to know if I want to raise money with my customers for food banks in the area, is it better for them to donate direct cash or food, like in kind of in kind donations? Rada, could you answer that, please? Sure. Um, well, thank you for for offering um, your support, and and I agree with what um, you know Scott has said as well in terms of volunteers as well as financial resources. Specifically at this time, given that we're purchasing so much food and we're purchasing it in such huge quantities, right? Millions and millions of pounds of food. Financial resources are really what we do need at this point, as opposed to food donations. We're trying to we're building boxes of nutritionally balanced food, and we're trying to ensure that there's adequate amounts of protein, dairy, carbohydrates, vegetables, etc. So our, if we have funds to be able to purchase, it makes it easier to construct these nutritionally balanced boxes. And, and I think, you know, what you've heard, Kojo, in this show and, and in prior shows that you've done as well, they're very creative, innovative ways of coming together to support our community during this time. Certainly many of your listeners and others in the community have supported us in the last few months, and we thank them all, uh, you know, greatly because we wouldn't be able to purchase the amount of food that we need to without their support. This is unfortunately looking like a longer term scenario for us rather than a short few month crisis. So we encourage those who've donated already to please think about donating again uh, because the, the size and the number of individuals who are in need only seems to be growing at this point. Um, and we will use those funds to purchase food, but also to better target those communities that are in need and be able to provide the food through through means that are most applicable uh, and channels that are most relevant to the most vulnerable within our communities. So if you go to capitalareafoodbank.org, you'll be able to easily donate. And there's also a volunteer connection there um, to, to be able to volunteer as we need uh, more support in communities. I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Radha Muthai is the president and CEO of the Capital Area Food Bank. Radha, thank you so much for joining us and for the work you do. Always doing. a pleasure. Thanks, Kojo. Scott Lewis is the executive director of Enterprises, Education, and Employment at Catholic Charities of Washington. Scott Lewis, thank you for joining us and for the work you're doing. Thank you very much, Kojo. 
This segment on the state of area food banks was produced by Kurt Gardner and our conversation on racism with Jeffrey James Madison and Roquan Brown was produced by Lauren Marco. Are you a student, teacher, or parent? We'd like to hear from you. What are you most worried about when it comes to school this fall? Record a voice memo on your cell phone and email the recording to kojo at wamu.org subject line school reopening. Coming up tomorrow, the first segment in our education series, What Will School Look Like This Fall? Local districts are drafting plans. While some are opting for 100% remote instruction, others are aiming for a combination of in-person and online learning. So, what factors into these decisions? And what are schools doing to ensure the safety of students, teachers, and other support staff? We'll hear from public health experts and school district leaders. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Namdi. Kojo Namdi Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sydney Grannon, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardner, Richard Cunningham, and Kayla Hewitt. Our managing producer is Ingelisa Schrobsdorf. Our engineers are Mike Kidd and Rashad Young. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. This time on Dish City, 18th Street Lounge is one of the many businesses forced to close down because of the pandemic. But regulars of the late DC nightclub say they'll cherish the memories they made there. During those times when like, I didn't have a person to go call up in town to go do something, you know, I knew I could go there and feel like I wasn't alone. On Dish City, how one club changed the course of DC nightlife history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.